Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, Locum Tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if Locums is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of Locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from Locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of Locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and today we have another good one in store today. We are actually finally bringing back some uh, some pediatrics. You know, this, this is fun. Pediatrics is, is, is fun. It's a great field, a uh, great specialty, and today we have none other than Dr. Steve Gibbons, and what we're going to talk about today are pediatric upper extremity fractures, so, you know, a little bit of trauma. So we've uh, actually divided this up into two sections, so we have a part one that's going to be released today, and then we have a part two going to be released next week uh, and a little bit more about uh, dr gibbons he completed his medical school at the university of texas health science center in san antonio he did his residency at the university of texas southwestern medical center and he did a fellowship at the university of colorado at denver and again he is a pediatrician he was actually uh, staff at tulane for a little while so i did a case or two with dr gibbons before he moved uh, but again a great episode if you have not already, go and check out the YouTube channel if you would like to see the video that goes along to this audio podcast. If you want to take a look at some of the things that we're talking about in the podcast, uh, go and do that as everything is at Nailed It Ortho. And uh, hit the subscribe button. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Dr. Gibbons, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Uh, so happy to have you on, and so welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Cole. It's a pleasure to be on with you. The pride of Tulane, the pride of Marietta, <laughs> Georgia. I am from Marietta, and you were you were once here as well at Tulane. I, I remember I, I at least scrubbed one case with you. I That's think right. We, you were pretty young, so you probably didn't yep. get to do much with me, but I enjoyed my time at Tulane. Oh, that's awesome. And... Typically at the beginning of our podcast, what we do is we ask our guests just a couple of questions is getting to know you a little bit better. And so I guess one of the main things is what kind of brought you into the field of, of pediatrics out of all the different specialties you could have gone into? That's a good question because that's probably, you know, one of the tougher decisions that orthopedic residents have to make. Um, the first thing is I didn't mind talking with parents and kind of giving them more simple explanation of what's going on. I didn't need to use like fancy words or something. I liked, you know, making sure they understood what was going on with their kid. But from like a clinical and operative side, I really like the idea that it's, you know, a varied age range, you know, from zero to 18 and treatment is different depending on how old they are. Um, and I like the idea of having longitudinal follow-up. So I might you know, treat a two-year-old with a toddler's fracture in their tibia. And then when they're 10, treat them for their distal radius. And then when they're 14, treat them for their tibial tubercle fracture. And so I, I like the idea of, of seeing these patients over time. And kids are resilient. They're super fun. They don't ask for medicine. They want to get back to what <laughs> they want to do. And so uh, that's kind of what drew me to pediatrics. 
Yeah, that 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 is very true. The kids are they just want to go out and run and and go back and play with their friends. I had a I had a great time on Pisa. I had fun, you know, talking with the kids. Um secondly, I guess what brought you towards the field of just like education? You know, we have a lot of people that are trying to figure out if they want to go into private practice, if they want to go to, to a hospital-based system, if they want to go more the academic route. So what brought you more towards the academic? Like what pushed you towards academics? So I would say there are two things for me. So first of all, when you're trying to decide, the nice thing about academics is the infrastructure is already set up. Um, you have partners uh, that you can bounce stuff off of. The the overhead is taken care of. So when you look at it from, uh, you know, how am I going to make a salary and how is is my practice going to run? One of the benefits of academic medicine is that that is all kind of set up for you and you don't have to worry about that. Um, from the teaching aspect of it, you know, when I was a resident, I could remember certain faculty that the way that they taught and the way that they showed how they did a procedure made it really clear to me, different than reading like a book or reading Hoppenfelds or something. And so uh, I always kind of wanted to be that person who could teach residents. And, and, and when I would show them like tips and tricks, it would it would make the idea of doing a, a type three supercondylar not so daunting to them. And so I really enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I think it's definitely, you know, good to have somebody that can actually show you things. And there are definitely a lot of things that you pick up talking with somebody and learning from somebody that you don't necessarily pick up in a book, which is pretty much what you just said. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and the last question that I have for you, is you know kind of if you were just to kind of look back and you wanted to give yourself some advice in residency you say you're a, a you know first year resident and you know you've gone through your residency and fellowship and now you've been in practice for x amount of years any advice that you would give yourself um man these are good questions i feel like i'm in therapy this is nice <laughs> um I would say, looking back, if I would have prepared a little bit better earlier on for cases, you know, read about what um, the pathology was and read up on the the approach and then watched a video of the approach and kind of did the legwork beforehand, I think it would have been a little easier uh, in the OR to understand more quickly what was going on and then uh, be more confident with when it was my turn doing it myself. And if I could go back, I'd probably do that a little bit more. Um, you know, when you're a resident and you finally get home and after doing all that you had to do the day before, sometimes you're not really thinking like, oh, I should study for tomorrow's cases. You're kind of like, I'm going to lay down. And next thing you know, it's 4 a.m. and you're getting up again. So that's probably the thing I would do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can completely agree with that I, I, you know for example we do we rotate twice on on our sports rotation which is what i'm on now and i remember the first time i didn't really have much idea what was going on like you know you're kind of you know that some of the steps here and there but you don't necessarily realize some of the minute things until you go and you you know you go and you watch a couple of videos and read you know different articles on the different techniques you're like oh okay that's why we're doing that that way oh yeah that makes sense oh okay so yeah, I totally agree. And it is hard uh, as a resident, you know, because you have a lot of things going on. You're on call and you have this person, this chief is texting you and this other person's texting you. So it can be a little difficult. Yeah, um, I will actually, you know, when residents reach out, you know, the night before or even the morning of and ask, 
specific questions about how are we going to do this one, I always appreciate that because it means they're kind of thinking ahead. And then, you know, when, when I talk about, okay, this is what we're going to do because of this, I feel like they understand a little bit better when the case actually starts. Yeah, totally agree. So residents that are listening to this, please go and prepare for your case for tomorrow. Uh, after you listen to this or while you listen to this, just however you do it, just go ahead and prepare for your cases tomorrow. Uh, that way you'll get the most out of it, whatever case it may be. Uh, so moving forward and kind of transitioning to our talk for the day, we're going to talk a little bit about pediatric upper extremity trauma. We'll talk about a, a couple of different things. And I think uh, we we're talking a little bit beforehand that this will be a little bit different type of an episode as we'll try to test based on, you know, the high points on a lot of these different types of injuries on upper extremity. We'll, we're not going to do super cognitive humor because we have a whole podcast dedicated just to that because that's very in detail and they ask us a lot of questions about that and that, that kind of deserves its own podcast and some of these topics too as well. Um, but, you know, we can kind of get, get started and say we want to start off with the top of the shoulder and go down. And so how often are you seeing medial clavicle fractures in the pediatric population? And are they really medial clavicle fractures? Can you kind of talk um, about like kind of the, what what's really going on when, when we're suspecting that? Yeah, I would say, number one, not very common. Um the vast majority of the clavicle injuries are mid shaft and and uh uh when it comes to medial clavicle the the ligamentous complex at the medial clavicle is so strong that typically it's not um uh a fracture per se but rather like a physial separation and uh the good news is that you know the medial clavicle doesn't close until so late that it has tremendous remodeling potential. So the vast majority of these are treated non-operatively. Uh, what I will say is that if you do see one, I always tell the parents they're going to have a bump there because uh, they're going to make a bunch of callus and then it's going to remodel. So if you let them know ahead of time, there's going to be a bump, then as it goes down, they're not so worried because once that callus pops up, they're always worried about, oh, what is this? Is this wrong? Um, you know, just like the the slide says, sometimes it can be a little hard to see. So the serendipity view can be uh, advantageous. You're essentially looking, are the clavicles aligned? And when you see one looks higher than the other, that's typically what tips you off to something at the sternoclavicular joint. Um, if there's any question about it, the CT, the axial views of the CT is what's going to show it. Um, uh, but it kind of like a SC dislocation, you can try a closed reduction, but in the vast majority of these, you don't even have to, as they they have a good remodeling potential. Right. And is it pretty similar for adults where an anterior dislocation is a little bit more, uh, is more common than a posterior? Is it similar in the pediatric population? It is. Uh, you know, personally, I've seen two posterior uh, dislocations. One was in fellowship and one was in eight years of practice. And so they're extremely uncommon. Yeah. Um, those are the ones that you don't want to mess with until you have all your ducks in a row with your imaging and, and uh, you know, assuming they're not having any symptoms from it, you can also treat those non-operatively because they tend to do well. Yeah. And, and are those the one where you, well, if you have to take those to the OR, typically, not typically, but we've in some of the books, they'll say you should have a cardiothoracic surgeon on standby. Like, you know, just like you were saying, have all your ducks in a row, be as prepared as you can for these. 
And yeah, it's, and it, you know, if you're ever given a question about this, they're almost always the posterior dislocation because they want you to know how to be safe and know not to, you know, try and tug on it in the ER and cause a potential devastating vascular injury. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, that, that, that sounds good. So, and the non-operative treatment is just typically a sling for X amount of time, and then you start them off with physical therapy after X amount of time, or do in the pediatric population, are they pretty okay without therapy? Uh, I would say, I would say it's probably half and half in my anecdotal experience. You know, the younger they are, the less therapy they need. Right. Uh, typically younger uh, people will kind of self-limit. And so after two weeks in a sling, they'll start to move it on their own. Uh, they don't get stiff from this. So if you want to keep a sling on for an extra week or two, that's totally fine. Um, and, you know, typically they may cosmetically have a little bump there compared to the other side, but in the majority of cases, I've seen it go away. Yeah. And, and speaking about, I guess, little bumps on the shoulder, um, if you go to kind of these clavicle fractures now, how is there any difference in treatment? Let's talk about mid-shot clavicle fractures. Um, you know, how often do you see these? And then I guess what's the treatment algorithm difference between adults and necessarily pediatrics? Because, you know, some may be a little bit different how you treat it. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll separate it into two categories. So pediatric or adolescent. So in the pediatric okay. clavicle, there's almost no reason to fix it. Um, the, the healing rate, the return to level of function, the complication rate all favors non-operative treatment when you're pediatric, like younger than 10. Uh, you know, obviously there's going to be some outliers here or there if it's tenting the skin or if it's open or something like that. But the great majority of mid-shaft clavicle fractures in pediatric population can be treated non-operatively. They will continue to remodel for a long time. So even in an x-ray like this one that you have, you can see callus. Clinically, it won't look too different than the other side. Um, once you have a bunch of bridging callus, they usually have no difference in shoulder range of motion on the affected side compared to the other side. So those... Um, there, uh, there's usually not a reason to fix it unless otherwise stated with being open or tinting the skin. Um, occasionally you can, uh, fix it if they're, uh, you know, if it's like an MVC and they have a broken clavicle and a humerus fracture and a distal radius all on the same side, just to get them up and moving quicker. Uh, but your average mid shaft clavicle is from a fall from sports uh, sometimes from a car accident and they can be treated non-operatively and they do really, really well. Now, the second part of that is the adolescent population. Um, generally, it's the same mantra where they, they heal reliably and they do well. And even when you see that classic Z deformity, um, as it heals, it keeps looking better over time. Um, you know, the, the main controversy becomes, okay, what if you're an athlete? What if you're a high level athlete and it's your dominant arm? What should you do then? There is good literature that shows that fixing it gets you back to sport definitively quicker than non-operative treatment, but you still have a relatively high complication rate, anywhere between 15 and 30%, whether it be um, skin irritation from prominent implant or infection or a numb spot or something like that. Um, so 
that's kind of a discussion between you and the patient if it's their dominant arm and they're a high level athlete, giving them the pros and cons. So if they're out of season, leads a little bit more towards treating it non-operatively. But if they're in season, especially if they're a senior in high school, then you got to have that discussion of, okay, should we fix this to get you back out there? Right. And, and for in your, in your typical algorithm for your non-operative treatment is sling for X for what about two to three weeks or so. And then you get them started with therapy in around four weeks. Once you see a little bit of calluses you were talking about. Yeah. So if, if you're, if you're an athlete, sling for two weeks, usually you start to develop callus. Um, once there's callus, the bone isn't going to move anymore. So they can move their arm. They can start getting it strong again. Physical therapy will help it get quicker. And then it's anywhere between six and 12 weeks after the injury before you can get back to sport, depending on what the sport is. Obviously, football takes the longest to get back because the last thing you want is them going back too early refracturing it and then starting the process all over again the younger kids typically don't need physical therapy um they'll get their strength back just starting to use their arm again okay yeah all right that makes sense so even if we see these displaced fractures in the in the pediatric population they can still be treated non-operatively and they do just fine you know, with, with do with non-operative treatment. They really do. Now, some people might have differing opinions, but in terms of function and healing reliability, non-operative treatment of clavicles is generally first line for almost all pediatric and adolescent clavicles. Okay. And so say, you know, we're, we're continuing to move down the arm or down the extremity, or maybe to the side, if you want to be more technical, lateral, um, but say what, what, what makes the you know, we're going to approximate humerus now. So what makes the approximate humerus, I guess, from a physiology standpoint or growth standpoint, a little bit different and how you can approach it and treat it? And then what is kind of your treatment algorithm, you know, when you when you see these? So the, the, the proximal humerus is the magic bone of the body. Uh, you know, when you're talking about areas that grow more, have more remodeling potential. So your proximal humerus, 80% of your humerus, your distal radius, 80% of your radius. And so fractures around there can remodel better. And so they can tolerate more deformity at first, especially the proximal humerus. You know, if you go on ortho bullets and look at, you know, the, the, the angulation and the amount of displacement that you can tolerate, it's pretty funny. It, it actually says younger than 10 years old, any amount of angulation, any amount of translation. Hmm. And in my anecdotal experience, that is literally true. It has so much remodeling potential. So typically these, if they're going to be treated operatively, they tend to be older patients nearing skeletal maturity. Um, and they tend to be fixed percutaneously, like you can see on these x-rays here. Um, because you can get it in an acceptable place without needing a big plate and screws. Um, in terms of pearls for the proximal humerus, it, essentially for it to sit in a better position and start to remodel, you want the deltoid to relax because when you have a fracture there and it bleeds, everything's irritated, the deltoid is contracting and it's pulling that proximal humerus up. And that's why it usually that shaft slides laterally 
and proximally creating that varus deformity that you routinely see with these. So the way to relax the deltoid is one of two things. Either if you're gonna treat it in a sling, it's helpful to have the sling be almost loose and not tight. If the sling is tight, then it's pushing up their humerus. But if it's loose, after a couple of days when that deltoid relaxes, their arm can kind of sink into the sling and then it'll look better quicker. Secondly, one of the ways to treat this is a hanging arm cast, where if you just put a cast shell over the forearm and then uh, you can put some kind of sling through that cast and around their neck, the weight of that cast will help pull that arm down and help align it a little better. If residents are experienced, I always tell them, hey, if you want to try a hanging arm cast and learn how to do it, go ahead. But if they're not experienced, a sling is totally acceptable as well. And then if you're going to fix it, maybe it, they're, you know, it's a 15-year-old girl and it's, uh, you know, shifted over two-thirds of the shaft width and you want to make it better. I always try for a closed reduction percutaneous pinning first. And the pearl on that is it's way harder than you think it is. That angle going from the shaft, getting up into the humeral head can make you feel really silly. And then secondly, you're, you're trying to put the pins in without damaging the axillary nerve. So you can mark an area on the lateral humerus about five centimeters distal to the acromion and make sure you enter there. But there's a lot of skin and muscle there. So when you enter there, you need to get onto bone before you tilt your hands down because a lot of times you can go into the skin, but that angle is so steep that your pins will actually get to bone much higher than five centimeters distal. Um, so I tell people if, if you're going to do one of these, if you're a resident and you have this book, just know if it takes a while, that's not uncommon because it's more difficult than you think. Yeah, and is your reduction maneuver typically just some abduction of the arm that you're just trying to get your distal fragment to meet that proximal fragment or what That's is right it? you know that that humeral head will move all over the place um so sometimes traction on the arm and then abducting it to bring the shaft to the head can make it a little bit easier um and then it's really nice to have an assistant for this to kind of hold the arm there so that the other person can pin because it's a little difficult to do it if you're flying solo. So if it's your first time, I would not suggest doing it alone. Right. <laughs> of course not. Need some hands, need, need another pair of hands. And so to recap, again, a lot of remodeling potential from the proximal humerus. You know, if they're younger and have almost completely displaced, you can still treat these non-operatively and they'll remodel and uh, That's right. So a, a fun little thing for, you know, any students or residents who are listening, go on Google and type in pediatric proximal humerus fracture and you'll see examples of the remodeling potential um, and you'll be amazed. Yeah. And and how is and so that that's proximal humerus fractures. And so how often are you seeing humeral shaft fractures? I don't think I ever saw. Yeah, in a actual humeral shaft fracture in a pediatric patient during my rotation. So I would say most commonly I see this in football. Okay. Um, and then as you get a little older, the 15, 16, 17 year olds, um, uh, it's usually car accidents. Right. I'd say that is what I have seen. 
for this. And you can think of the humeral shaft as the proximal humerus light, meaning it can also it also has a lot of remodeling potential. And so um, they tend to do really well non-operatively. I my personal preference is to go straight to a Sarmiento in these. Okay. See them in uh, like seven to ten days. Uh, the reason for that is I can check and make sure it hasn't, you know, displaced unacceptably. But secondly, you know, the humeral shaft bleeds a ton, so their entire arm is huge at first. And so when you put a Sarmiento on, you know, seven to ten days later, you're going to have to really cinch that thing up because now some of that swelling is going away. Um, and uh, really, they just need it until they have enough callus to where they can move the arm without it. Um, so typically, it's only somewhere between three and six weeks in a Sarmiento, and then they can start doing more. Um, I do like to have the humerus completely heal before they return to sports. Um, I don't trust that callus bone. But with callus, they can do normal activities at home and at school, just not sports yet. Yeah. And Dr. Gibbons, you mentioned, you know, unacceptably or, or, or as far as the positioning of the humerus, what are your, I guess, what are your normal parameters that you're looking for? you you see this and you're like, we can treat it non-operatively. And are there any parameters where you're like, this should probably be fixed, even if they're, you know, 10, you know, anything like that? So I would say when you're young, you know, 10 or younger, almost no reason to fix it unless it's open or conversely, if they have like a concomitant injury on that arm. So for instance, I had a kid who was in a car accident who had a clavicle and humerus fracture. Um, and so in that case, it's really hard to, and he had some lower extremity injuries as well. And so if he is having to use crutches, it's really hard to use that arm um, because of multiple fractures. And so uh, in him, putting a couple flex nails in the humerus gives him a nice stable humerus to where he can put some weight on the crutches. Um, uh, when they get older, there's some parameters. It's usually about 20 degrees of angulation, uh, one to two centimeters of shortening. Um, when it's your non-dominant arm, you really don't notice the shortening. Um, you can make an argument that if you're a high level athlete, you don't want the shortening because that'll affect your muscle function if it's your dominant arm. Um, however, if we're going to fix them, my first go-to is flexible nails. Okay. And the reason is it small incision by the elbow, both nails go in the same incision. Uh, you can usually get them across the fracture relatively easily. Uh, and then you avoid a big incision with a plate and screws. But I always have, you know, ORAF as a backup if if I can't get uh, flex nails in. And any, are you ever worried about the radial nerve when you do that? I mean, because I was for this, I guess in comparison to adults, you're not necessarily reaming or anything of that sort. But are you ever worried about the radial nerve or go and and make an incision and look at it? Or you typically you found it it's okay because. I assume maybe because of the thick periosteum of the kids. I don't, I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So I, you know, I think the rate of rate of nerve palsy and humeral shaft fractures in young people is less than 5%. Yeah. But you bring up a good point, getting a good exam pre-op. Cause sometimes, you know, depending on their age, it's hard to get a reliable exam because they see their arm looks weird. They're really scared. You're telling them to move. And so sometimes you could be tempted to be like, oh, it's okay. I'll just, you know, we'll get an exam later. Um, 
if it is in pre-op and then post-op it's out, that can be worrisome about, okay, what do I do now? So having a good pre-op exam will let you know, because if it's out pre-op, generally in this case, it's a neuropraxia and that'll come back. Yeah. Um, uh, typically with the nails, uh, not a high incidence of causing a radial nerve issue um, because it's all done percutaneously. As long as when you're trying to pass the nails, you're not you know, jamming them five centimeters past the fracture site out of bone. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the flex nails typically stay in there long enough until the fractures heal, usually removed somewhere around six months post-op. And again, small incision by the elbow. Um, when you take them out, they're usually not super prominent. Um, so they're kind of my go-to before considering going to a plate, unless it's a super comminuted humerus. Okay. All right. So, I mean, main thing, typically, again, in, in a pediatric patient, these can heal non-operatively, Sarmiento brace, you know, occasions where you may consider fixing this are polytrauma where they need their upper extremities to ambulate you know, or, or enable to bear some weight. And, and in that case, you may fix this with flexible uh, or flexible implants. Now, moving more distal towards the elbow. Actually, I got a question on this earlier. I was doing some rest study questions preparing for boards. Good for you. Good and for I, you. <laughs> and I got a question on these lateral condyle fractures. Uh, what I guess just really quickly, uh, a lot of us are at least starting off when we try to look and evaluate for the pediatric elbow x-ray is always super confusing because, you know, a lot of things aren't ossified. So any just quick general tips that you have when you're looking at an elbow x-ray and you're trying to evaluate it for the pediatric patient? Yes. So first off, um, one of the easiest things to look for is an elbow effusion. And the way that you see that is on the lateral. So you have an x-ray here, anterior and posterior fat pad. Um, so the, if you can't quite see anything, but you have a fat pad sign, something had to bleed to cause that fat pad sign. So in case anybody's listening and doesn't know what that is, you normally have fat in your elbow that sits right on bone. If something breaks and therefore bleeds, the blood gets up under that fat and lifts it up. And now it becomes a, something you can see on x-ray. And so uh, fat pad sign is a really good uh, marker for either a non-displaced supraconylar and someone young or someone older for a, a radial neck fracture. And so if you have any question, but you see a fat pad, you can always put them in a long arm cast um, and uh, have them follow up in clinic. Secondly, the lateral x-ray tells you pretty reliably whether or not there's a supraconylar humerus fracture. So a line drawn down the front of the humerus should always bisect the capitellum. And usually if it does not, then there's a supraconylar humerus. And since 85% of them are extension type, it's usually anterior humeral line going in front of the capitellum. Thirdly, the lateral part of the elbow in someone who is growing only has one physis, one growth center. So if you're looking at a the lateral part of the elbow and you see two lines, one of those lines is a fracture. Mm. So in this example, this one's pretty easy to see because it's off, but the, the junction between the capitellum and that little tiny fleck of bone that's attached to it, that's the growth center. And so the line above it is the fracture. So there's always just one line there. So if you see two, that's a lateral condyle fracture. 
Um, that's kind of the basic way of looking uh, at x-rays in a skeletally immature patient. Okay. And, and so for any patients that, and just to recap, for those who are listening, you just said, again, looking at the, for any type of a fat pad sign, looking at the anterior humeral line, which you evaluate on the lateral x-ray, and you want to make sure that that's kind of at least bisecting the capitellum. And if that's off, then you have some type of a superconjugal humerus fracture. Then also on the AP, when you're evaluating that and you're looking at the lateral side, it should be only one ossification center. So you really should only see one line. If you see two lines, something's wrong and there's a fracture. That's right. That's the easiest way to notice the lateral condyle because everyone is always like, is that one? I can't tell. There's <laughs> only one line there. Like, look medially. There's right. only one line medially too. And that's the the apophysis of the medial epicondyle. So a second line there is a fracture. Hmm. Those are some easy, but I, li I like those tidbits uh, because I remember first starting off, I was like, man, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I, if, if it, unless it's like blatantly obvious, I'm like, I, you know, you're trying to look and see if you can see something. So those are thanks for those, uh, those tips, Dr. Gibbons. And so what, when we have a patient with a lateral condyle fracture, what, uh, what imaging are we getting? You know, typically we get our AP and our lateral. Should we be getting any other imaging? And then can you kind of walk us through how we should treat these uh, these injuries? Yes. Yeah, so the lateral condyle is a different animal because it's intraarticular. And so that makes it slow to heal. And that also means that because like on this x-ray here, all you can see is the capitellum. You can't see the medial part of the distal humerus because it hasn't ossified yet. Right. And so you don't know if that fracture line goes all the way down into the joint. And so they have a big step off from lateral to medial of their joint. And so that's why these are a little bit different than your traditional supracondylar humerus, which doesn't affect the joint. So uh, typically AP and lateral. But the view that you'll sometimes get tested on is getting an internal oblique of the elbow to, to try and see that uh, lateral condyle a little bit better. Okay. And so treatment options. So if, if this is non-displaced, how are we treating it? And if it's displaced, um, you know, are there any, any things that will indicate you to operate on this? Yeah, so minimally displaced, most people will say two to two and a half millimeters of displacement. You can treat them in a cast. Just know that it's going to be slow to heal. Whereas in a supracondylar humerus, within three weeks, there's ample callus there and pins can be pulled. A lateral condyle can take four to six weeks and even longer. So if you're going to treat it non-operatively, a long arm cast, and then uh, at the three-week mark, take x-rays out of the cast. And the reason is it can sometimes be hard to see callus with the cast on because if it's not healed yet, you can always put a new cast on. So that's what we're going to be doing for minimally displaced fractures. Any ones that are displaced more than two uh, millimeters are going to get treated surgically one of two ways, and, and there's pros and cons of both. Sometimes percutaneously, you can push that fragment over and then put a couple K wires in it. However, if you're going to treat it percutaneously to know what the joint looks like, you need an arthrogram. So if anybody doesn't know what an arthrogram is, inject dye into the elbow joint so you can fully see all the cartilage that's there because it's much bigger than you think. Without that, you have no idea if you have the, the piece in the right position. 
Um, however, for most of these that are displaced, you're going to uh, make an incision to put it back in place. The incision is really simple. It's a lateral incision directly over the lateral condyle. Usually the fracture does all the dissection for you. So once you get into fat, all of a sudden you're going to be right down on bone. Um, typically, most people will put a, a freer or a homan on the anterior humeral surface to kind of lift uh, all the soft tissue up so you can actually see the joint to make sure the joint is reduced. Uh, and then you're either treating it with K-wires or a screw. Um, I have gone to all screws. I don't use K-wires anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the pros of a screw is you're providing compression. Um, so you can see earlier radiographic healing. Uh, they can get the cast off sooner and start moving it sooner because you have a nice beefy screw in there. Um, you know, the biomechanical studies show that the screw is better than K-wires. Uh, however, the downside is uh, possible surgery in the future to remove that screw. Whereas for K-wires, the benefit is no secondary surgery. But usually it takes a good four to six weeks before it's healed enough to pull the K-wires. And then so now they're starting motion at four to six weeks. Uh, in my practice, uh, single screw up the lateral column. I do it bicortically, um, one for compression purposes, but two to prevent that screw from backing out. Um, and at two weeks, x-rays out of the cast, usually you can already see healing and uh, let them start moving it. Typically by six weeks with a screw, they're healed enough to return to activity. And by that time they have full motion because they've been working on it for a month. Um, and so that's why I prefer that. Uh, some people will argue that it's better not to have to go back and take that screw out. Uh, and there's reasons to suggest that, but I, I really like the screw because you compress it down, you see it heal, quick and you can start them moving earlier mm. okay and you you have a good uh um picture on here about the blood supply so the, the typical question that you get whether it's oit or boards is where do you not dissect when you open these up and it's posteriorly because you can see the the blood supply comes from posteriorly and the worst thing that you can do is cause avn in one of these kids yeah, perfect. Yeah, I think you hit all the hit all the high points. You talked about the uh, internal oblique X-ray when we're assessing these. Uh, if if you are treating it percutaneously, definitely want to get an orthogram, like you said, and then you can open reduce and fix these with a screw, just like you're just talking about to get some good compression. You you in your practice, you said you do one lateral column screw bicortical, uh, and then you also mentioned the point of avoiding that posterior dissection because you don't want to cause AVN to the lateral condyle. It's a bad thing to do. Thank you all for listening to this episode. I told y'all Dr. Gibbons is the man. Uh, this was a great episode and stay tuned for part two next week. Subscribe so you get the notifications and uh, we will see you all soon. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, Locum Tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if Locums is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of Locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. 
You'll also hear firsthand stories from local physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.